episode 229 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 15th of May, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Howdy, partners. <laughs> yes, fresh off the plane from America, with a belly full of pizza, I hear. Let's get straight on with the news, then. Excellent Thunderbird news. Thunderbird is thriving, our 2022 financial report. And it turns out that putting a little kind of nag thing in the actual software itself has paid dividends for them because they've gone from 2.7 million in 2021 to 6.4 million in 2022 of donations. And that's almost all small donations as well. I think the biggest one was like $1,000 or something. So that's some real grassroots stuff, or it would be if it was politics. Yeah, an extraordinary amount of money to come in from the users of your product. It's amazing and should be celebrated. And they're doing well with this money. They've already grown their staff from 15 to 24. So this seems like a, a success story all round. Jobs in open source, a product which is well supported and well financed, a good roadmap of features. It sounds incredibly positive, which makes a change for us. It does, doesn't it? It's an awful lot of people just to write an email client, though, right? Uh, I was waiting for some cynicism from you. I know, it's good. It's it's always nice to see the users of the product funder, and I don't mean that in a sort of snarky way. I was being <laughs> jokish. Some people find it hard to write a web browser with $500 million. <laughs> That's true. Oh, they're trickier, though. Yeah. Well, I have a personal interest in this, because I've set a couple of people up who are Windows users with Thunderbird, And so my interest is in this thing continuing. Otherwise, I've got to find them something new. So when I read this, I was very pleased that, oh, yeah, well, this is going to be at least another couple of years before I have to do that then. I agree. I think it's great news. I also really like the transparency of of the way this is written and the way that they're presenting it. It's great to see because it's something that other projects can emulate or maybe feels more confidence from. I mean, Thunderbird must have been through some dark times. It seemed like email clients like this were unnecessary about 10 years ago so there must be a really committed user base or people are rediscovering email clients on their desktop but if you look at the graph in this post you can see exactly where they added that Mm. gentle nag thing and um, it just shoots up the amount of money that they're getting and i think that's a lesson that can be learned like you've got to be a bit more upfront about asking for contributions from your users It's funny because every time we come across a story where we talk about nag screens or we talk about users being encouraged to register so that there's some relationship between the developer of the software and the user of the software, the overwhelming feedback that we read in the comments section and on on the internet generally is, no, 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 we don't want to do this. We're not going to do it. And yet somehow Thunderbird have found a core demographic who are happy to do exactly that. So I don't really know how they're in this position. Why have they found these people that everyone else seems to be missing? Could it be to do with the type of person who uses a local email client on their machine Mm. and not webmail? Are they different somehow? I feel attacked. (laughs) Well, so you should. It's What is this, 1999? Oh, well, I mean, if you if you get a fax from somebody, they've taken the time to write you that fax. So that's why people funded their email client. You have to attack them with the previous technology. Well, maybe. I mean, I have not seen the need for a local email client for an awfully long time. I think, though, if you deal in mail properly every day, like if you were doing kernel development or even for me with automated stuff coming all the time, oh, I do not want to be bothered with a crappy web interface. They are awful 
They're all awful. Gmail is rubbish. I don't know how anybody uses it. I just do not like that at all as an interface. It's funny because the last time I used a real mail client, I hated it and I much preferred Gmail's interface and I kind of stuck with that theory. But I think in my day-to-day life, though, email is starting to take a back seat to Messenger of, of just some sort. Yeah, Slack and whatnot and Telegram and all of that, yeah. Yeah, but I see I'm growing really tired. Now, now that we have all of these amazing ways that we can talk to people, I am really getting tired of a pop-up notification in Firefox telling me I have a message somewhere, but it doesn't tell me where that site is. It just says, such and such sent you this. I'm like, okay, was that in Matrix? Was that in Mastodon? Was that in, what's the other one that we're using? Uh, Discord. And it doesn't notify you properly about that stuff. And I'm just, I'm fed up with it. Whereas at least with email for a show, that's great. It comes into one place. I can deal with it. I can read it when I feel like. I don't have to fret about responding quick enough. Normal people have separate apps. Yeah, but I just, I can't be arsed that either. There is something about email though that is, is the great leveler. It's the, the great open protocol in theory. And that's why for the show, like if people want to send feedback, that's what I always say show at latenightlinux.com because yeah you can send messages the other ways but they're just they're ephemeral aren't they they just get lost whereas an email you can search through and uh, i agree with you will i think the gmail interface is great and fanium's talking nonsense but uh, (laughs) you know breakfast cereals choice all of that but uh ultimately thunderbird is like the name you know in open source email clients try kml Uh, whatever the fact that it nearly died by the sounds of things is not good but they obviously had the user base there, and uh, it's come back brilliantly by the looks of things. So long may it continue. Just don't fritter away that money on crypto or the next stupid idea, making a television or a phone or something. Well, looking at that job list, they don't have a CEO yet. I think they need a CEO. Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe pay them like $3.5 million a year. <laughs> I think so. We talked about the recent Red Hat layoffs, but it seems like it might be a bit worse than we thought. We talked on Two and a Half Admins about the uh, shutting down of opensource.com, effectively, or at least the uh, pulling of funding from that. That was a community site where people would submit articles about open source stuff, and there was a team doing the editing and um, you know making it a, a proper kind of news site. Well, Ben Cotton, who was the Fedora program manager has been laid off and he's got a blog post about it and now he says he's going to stay involved and he's automated a lot of the stuff that he was doing so it's not going to be a terrible loss but the program manager if you look on docs.fedoraproject.org is described as the chief operating officer of the fedora project and my understanding of c-level stuff is that's like the uh the right hand of the uh ceo so matthew miller is the the leader and it seems that Ben was, you know, his right-hand man, effectively, coordinating the releases and doing just shitloads of stuff. So this is really bad. It's a bad look for Red Hat and IBM to be laying off someone who is a key player in the Fedora project, which is supposed to be a huge part of the whole RHEL ecosystem. Fedora is like the bleeding edge of it, and that combined with CentOS Stream effectively feeds into what becomes rel so this is a very surprising turn and an alarming turn quite frankly i know you lot don't give a shit about fedora <laughs> but you've got to give a shit about this that's a bit harsh it's not we're just yeah. not particularly interested in their brand of linux but 
I think what they do community wise is massive and, you know, it would be wrong to like mock any of that. And I really hope it's not IBM sort of doing it IBM and just doing the exact opposite of what we all hoped Red Hat would do when they became part of the IBM brand family, whatever you want to call it. The reverse merger we all hope for is sort of in reverse. I don't know what to read into this. That's that's the reason why I haven't got mm. much to say. I don't know. I don't know any of the background leading up to this decision, whether it's just part of the generic layoffs or if there are other things involved. I have no idea. Did an AI decide who was getting laid <laughs> off and uh, poor Ben was just <laughs> caught in the crossfire? Was it IBM Watson? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you imagine? There's probably some chap trying to sell that now going, oh, we had AI way before chat GPT. Look, come on, have a bit of Watson. But yeah, it is true that we don't really know many people over there. We don't know about the internal politics of IBM, Red Hat, Fedora. So there could be more to this story. But just from total outsider's perspective, it just doesn't look great. Combine this with the opensource.com thing and CentOS effectively going away and becoming much more of a useful part of the RHEL development process than just a clone of it that is all about community. It seems like the community stuff is becoming less important to Red Hat. And, you know, like you said, the reverse merger thing, Fadim, like it it seems like what we had hoped has not really panned out and Red Hat might be becoming more like IBM and IBM might be becoming less like Red Hat, which is not what we wanted. It's not what we wanted, but it's what we all secretly suspected would happen. Yeah, it's what we deserved. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get advert-free feeds of either just this show or the whole Late Night Linux family, including Linux After Dark, Linux Downtime, and Linux Matters. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support for links there. And if you want to get in contact with those, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Mozilla's new Mozilla.social Mastodon instance is an attempt to reinvent content moderation. So their long-awaited Mastodon instance, which they uh, are lagging even behind the European Commission on, is uh, in sort of an open beta, I think. It's not proper open sign-up, but some people are using it. And they've just come out and said it. We are not going to have a neutral moderation policy. We are going to be very opinionated on this. If you are a dick or a Nazi, then you are gone. 
I think this is a good idea in theory. I think that Mozilla are well-placed to build this system and maintain it, but who's going to police it? And they say in the article, or they allude in the article, that they've picked up recruits from Twitter when they were laid off and that these people have bought a whole load of experience of doing exactly this. Well, the, the only people that have got the experience of doing it are the human beings who are moderating the content. And those people were not laid off because they were never employed in the first place because there aren't any. I also went and poked around Mozilla's open recs and I looked back in time and I see nobody being hired with a job title of content moderation. So I don't believe that they have got a team or are capable of putting a team of significant size together to actually police this. So I think this whole thing is a non-starter. It's like they're allergic to their own money and they just don't want to spend it on fixing the actual root of the problem, which is their browser not being as good. <laughs> How can you turn this into that, Fairly, honestly? Oh, sorry, right. Yeah, positive. Um, I positively think that they won't be able to do this properly and they're terrible at everything they do. I think they've got good intentions. Yeah, but they're striding in like, oh, look, you've been doing that all wrong, Mastodon. Let us show you how it's done like we've managed to plunder away our brilliant lead that we had in the web browser field. Oh, yeah, come on, let's go wreck Mastodon for you now. That's what it sounds like to me. I think it's all right. I understand what you're saying. I understand what Will's saying, and I'm not sure I'd use it. But there are plenty of places on the internet where you can go and fill your mind with all kinds of toxic shit. And I think it's all right that there's a place that's going to be heavily opinionated and moderated in terms of safety and no use of derogatory language. It's a bit like the Ubuntu podcast of the Fediverse. Linux matters, come on, stay on brand. <laughs> but I think that's okay if they can do it. But as Will says, I think this is a lot of over-promise, under-deliver. Yeah. Well, maybe they've got to promise it and then they'll have to deliver it, you know, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, the, the problem with content moderation is that it's very hard to scale it. Mm. And that may be a problem for them. Unless they limit numbers and get volunteers to do it. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who'd be happy to help them out as a volunteer. And then you've got to manage those volunteers, which is not easy, but it is possible to do that. Why does it have to be so big? The great thing about the fact that Mastodon is federated is that you can go to all your wee communities that you like and be part of each one. You don't have to have a new Twitter. Why are they trying to recreate it? It sounds like trying to recreate like blessed Twitter and it's all going to be clean and lovely and why does it have to be that big? Why do I have to care? Can't we all just use Mastodon Social, Fossodon, you know, all those things that we've got already? Well, that ties in nicely to a new onboarding experience on Mastodon. And this is a post by Eugen, the CEO of Mastodon. Hang on, they have a CEO? What? <laughs> yeah, that is a bit strange, isn't it? But, uh, well, he's the CEO of the GmbH, I think it is, the, the company in Germany. You have to have a company in Germany. Everything's bureaucratic, in it? Faceless bureaucrats in Brussels and all that. <laughs> Last I checked, Brussels wasn't in Germany. <laughs> it's all the same to us. Yeah, exactly. Bloody foreigners. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, the point of this post is that when you sign up for Mastodon using the official apps, it used to say, pick a random server. And that would confuse people who didn't really understand the concept. Whereas now it's got two buttons, join mastodon.social or pick my own server. And so some people have taken it upon themselves to complain about this and say, oh, this is centralization of Mastodon. It's not supposed to be about this. Whereas others are saying, this is good. This is less confusing to new users. Let them join the big server 
And once they get the hang of it, they can always export their data and their followers and following and all of that to a small server that they've spun up themselves if they want to. Or they can just stay on Mastodon.social, which is better than Twitter. So far. I agree with the people who think it's a better idea and, and it's good. I, I think that when I joined up to Fosterdon and I went to download the Mastodon app to start with, it was baffling. It took me too long to work out what to do. I think this is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, joking aside, I, yeah, probably is. Because I found out I had a previous account that I've forgotten about, so probably is a good idea. Though I have seen a lot of people saying you should probably just block all .social addresses because it's all full of crypto bros now. So, yeah, may- maybe it's all going downhill slowly. Well, I've heard people complaining just generally that it shouldn't be all like official clients and official servers and centralized. But that doesn't matter to me because I can talk to people on any server using the official client from my Fosterdon account. That's the whole point of Mastodon and the Fediverse. And if Mozilla's one takes off, great. Then we can have two huge ones. And then you've got your, your various random ones, like, like Hackerdom's pretty big, I think. And uh, there's like ones for various communities. Like There's one for the LGBTQ plus community that's quite big, I think. And that's fine. Let's just have a, a bunch of islands. And if one of them goes to shit, you just defederate them just block the whole fucking instance and move on i think it's all working out as it should and it's it's relatively early days i mean i know mastodon has been around for ages but it's it's been hugely popular for less than a year at this point maybe about a year and uh, it, it seems to be like finding its feet now it's we're solving all the little issues and th- this is a good thing definitely the uh the default server i think yep totally agree let people get started easily. It's got to be a good thing. Maybe there's some other areas of FOSS that we could get Musk to help out by <laughs> sort of anti-promoting. <laughs> CEO of Mozilla. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Mixed gaming news then. Goodbye to Roblox on Linux with their new anti-cheat and wine blocking. This is a post from Gaming on Linux. I don't know, is this a bad thing? Uh, I thought it was a bad thing until, Graham, you said, uh, well, actually, your kids are a bit too fucking into Roblox and this might be a good thing. Yeah, and I think um, my kids at various points have been hooked on Roblox. There's loads of people on Twitch streaming their Roblox, or at least they were a, a, you know, a couple of years ago. Unlike all the other 
games like this and Minecraft in particular, they seem to latch on to certain people in Roblox and become friends with them and run around with them. And you never really know who these people are. And there are lots of reported instances of how poorly it's moderated and how anybody can pretend to be anybody. And I know that can happen anywhere. But in my experience, Roblox seemed worse for it. So I was always a bit sceptical about Roblox and I didn't like them using it. So I'm not bothered about this. I'm sorry, Phelan. Yeah, I don't know. I See, I find this really annoying. I get what you're saying and you're right. But Liam was using it here. Not Liam does. Our Liam, different Liam, uh, was using it quite a bit. And it was nice because he was actually able to use a Linux system. He was able to play this on that. He had a couple of things that were in Steam and he had the PlayStation for a couple of things that weren't available. And it was nice to be able to say, well, look, you're not limited from what you want to do. So on you go. And he was enjoying even messing around with the creative tools in Linux too, because he had them because I put a Kubuntu Studio on it originally. And yeah, he was having fun messing around with lots of stuff. The graphics applications, he even messed around in Blender at one point. I don't know how the hell he produced what he produced, because I can't even do anything in Blender. And all on the back of this was the fact that the games that all people that he liked watching or even pals that he plays around in school with, they all play it as well, were using it. And it was nice to be able to say, well, you know, you're not held back because you're using Linux. Whereas now it kind of feels like I really wish they'd developed for Proton rather than, you know, saying, well, well, we're not doing a Linux client. Well, we'll just specialize down to Proton because then you can kind of cover Windows and Linux at the same thing, but they haven't done that. So yeah, it's just annoying. It's the usual story. It's like the anti-cheat software is just the bane of it all because it's not like Linux can't do it. It's just they need to tick the box Mm. to say to do it, but they won't even do that because, oh, then we'd have to have support, blah, blah, blah. I was like, really, why can't you just do it anyway, you know? Yeah, I do agree with you. I mean, it seems like a backward step with other games publishers going, you know, doing the opposite, keeping things working in Proton, you know, without official Linux support. I was quite surprised by this because of the Steam Deck and the success of it, but seemingly it's just not successful enough. Mm. It's the perfect device for it as well, because he uses his Android tablet to use most of the Mm. time, and it's not as good as a PC, whereas the Steam Deck could be the best of both worlds. It it just seems so, I don't know, annoying. Uh, look, I'm not the one whose company's trying to make a profit here and, you know, l- trying to shore up responsibilities and trying to support multiple platforms. But that's why I say, like, even if Steam was the platform, I mean, I know they're not in Steam. That's probably why. And it's probably some sort of fight that they have with, you know, we don't want to give Steam any of our money, blah, blah, blah. But really, I don't care. And they should just get on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's never good when we lose a huge game because Roblox is huge. It's not even just a game, is it? It's like a whole ecosystem of creating shit and making money and whatnot. Yeah, they make other games in it that are like copies yeah. of other stuff. Like he knew all about bloody, what was that Korean thing that Squid was popular? Game. What? Yes. Yeah. And he was like, oh, let's do red light, green light. I was like, what are you talking about? He's mm-hmm. like, it's in Squid Game. And I was like, what? Don't you think that was a bit weird, though? That was a bit weird. A load of kids running around playing Squid Game. <laughs> it's cultural. Come on, Graham, it's cultural. <laughs> my, my, my daughter was about eight at the time. I was like, oh, yeah, have you seen Squid Game? <laughs> <laughs> well, this ties in with the Asus ROG Ally. This is a Steam Deck competitor ripoff. It's a little bit smaller and slimmer. Battery life isn't as good. Screen's high resolution fan isn't as whiny but this is 
I wouldn't go as far as say collaboration with Microsoft, but uh, Microsoft uh, have been involved with it, and it's very much a Windows device, which opens up, in theory, stuff like Roblox and all the other games that don't work on Linux and don't work with Proton for various reasons. But there's a review of it on The Verge, and in the headline it says, it's time to stop pretending Windows is the answer, because one of the great things about the Steam Deck is the interface. And Windows is just not there yet for small, handheld, 7-inch, portable gaming devices. And so you're actually able to play more games on Linux with these handhelds than you are with Windows in practice, it seems. At least according to Sean Hollister of The Verge. Yeah, I thought this was mind-blowing. I mean, Sean Hollister's one of their long-term editors or journalists and has been around for a long time. And it's one of those moments where I just saw the headline and thought... Look how far we've come and like kind of check what's happened there. The Verge is saying that this Windows first device with help from Microsoft isn't able to compete with the integration offered by Linux on the Steam Deck. Something that we thought was always going to be a deep struggle. And I thought I'd dual boot my Steam Deck just to squeeze a few FPS out of a few more FPS out of Cyberpunk. And um, but I've not done it. People successfully dual boot the Steam Deck, but I haven't even felt the need to do that. And that's what I thought was remarkable, that there's The Verge saying, well, you should have just used SteamOS. What I found interesting was that it didn't really touch much on game streaming because you've got, I know Stadia went to shit, but you've got other options there. And that seems like it would potentially plug the gap that you get from the missing games with Linux. And mm. given that the Steam Deck is so much cheaper, or well, it's not so much, but you know, it is a, a good bit cheaper than the ROG Ally. And it seems like you could just justify signing up for a, a streaming, a game streaming service to plug the gap to me and have the best of both worlds. Yeah, or have a PC and uh, stream to your PC at home if you cared about it that much. Yeah, I don't know which one's going to end up costing more, though, with the price of electricity these days. <laughs> Maybe in the first instance, a lot of people who maybe got a Steam Deck were PC gamers and maybe have a PC that they already gamed on and had a Steam library on that's kind of lying redundant. Um, and no, I certainly have because it's just so much easier to pick up the Steam Deck and blast around on it for a few minutes if you've got a bit of time. And briefly, Nintendo in being Shower of Bastards, shocker. So they had some new Zelda game come out. Apparently it's huge, whatever. I keep seeing loads of people talking about it. And uh, as a result of piracy of this, they've shut down a load of open source emulator projects, which is not ideal. No, I mean, Zelda isn't. I haven't played the latest one, uh, but the last, the previous one that I talked about, I think in the last episode, is, is an amazing game. And just for reference, in this household that I'm standing in, we have four Nintendo Switches, two copies of Zelda, I don't know, three copies of Mario. I love getting things to run on the Steam Deck and playing with emulation. And, and I imagine there's a lot of people that feel the same way. I, I doubt they're going to make much more money out of mm, doing these mm. kind of things. Yeah, you'd think that the PR hit would be worse than letting a few people mess around with emulators and have a slightly dodgy experience versus just paying for the game in the first place and when you really care about games and games like zelda don't come along very often you want to play them as close to natively as they were designed as, as possible you don't want to mess up your first playthrough dealing with fps issues and things not being rendered properly so it's nothing to do with playing the game for free 
And if it is, it's because somebody wouldn't be able to afford to buy the game anyway. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Right, instead of a KDE corner, we're going to have only two links this time. The first one, Plasma 6 better defaults. So Plasma 6 is very much underway now. And of course, this is based on Qt 6. They had a sprint recently. And the defaults are changing, some more sensible, some less sensible, I think. Like, double-click to open stuff. Like, finally, come on. Yeah, I mean, it's what I set up straight away, because I don't know if I'm... There's, maybe there's some magic way you're supposed to select stuff in KD when you single-click, but it never worked for me. I always have to double-click, because if I want to highlight a bunch of files, that's exactly what I want to do, is click on them once and then not have them open up in separate applications. But what I don't like is this floating taskbar panel business just to make it different from windows because windows 11 supposedly copied kde well they very much did i mean i'm sorry but they definitely did i mean windows 10 definitely did i would say at the time and yeah i mean look it's it's a default Uh, it's not going to affect you if you've got it set some other way and it's only for new users and people might like it and sure what of it like it reminds me more of chrome os somehow get out Well, there's no getting away with copying other interfaces. If you come up with some design, it's always going to be like something else. It's all Xerox Park, really, let's face it. I mean, some of them make sense, like the accent color stuff for the tinted backgrounds. Like, yes, it's actually quite difficult to tell what window that selected is. I think that's a good change. Apparently, scrolling on a desktop, yeah, I can understand if people have multiple desktops and they whizzed past by mistake. Like, I I know what I'm doing, and I've done it, and then gone, oh, okay, right, and I've just gone back to it, but I've watched even Liam doing it, and it's quite funny, because he's like, you've changed virtual desktop there, and then you have to explain what that means. So, yeah, I think these are good things, and it's nice that they're actually focusing on that, and the thing is, they don't force you to use them. That's the beautiful thing about it. It's not do it their way, and that's it. You can't change it. You are able to very much change whatever you want to, and that's why I like KDE, and I think... It's a better way of doing things. You can set a default, but at least you can change it in a nice way. Yeah, but defaults are king, but I suppose maybe not with Plasma. The whole point of it is that there are some defaults, but you can change literally everything you want. Yeah, but you don't have to change them. This is the this is the thing that annoys me. It's like you'd swear there was like a, I was having a conversation on Mastodon earlier. It's like you'd swear there was like K change your shit demon and uh Every hour you had to change three bloody things. and No, that is not how it works. You can set it the way you want and then leave it. I still think there's a baffling array of settings and options, but uh, that's just me. You can always use the search in the, in the control panel section to find what you're looking for. Yeah, that's always a sign of a really good settings system where you have to search like on Android. 
you've got one too. You just need to grep through all those text files that you have to change manually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a much more sensible way to do it. We'll also link to a post by Is It Volker, yeah. uh, who was at the sprint, and there's loads of more links from there. It seems like they did an awful lot of the sprint, and there's even builds of Plasma 6 that you can try out that are a little bit ropey. Obviously, you have to be uh, willing to put up with uh, a lot. You have to be a developer, basically. Yeah, and I think I think one of the interesting things that they're hoping for when it comes out is that it'll be far more stable and they're going to stick with a, a maybe a two-per-year release cycle rather than the four they had when five first came out. So, yeah, I think stabilization and uh, same defaults, I think it, it could be a very nice release if it all comes out nicely. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when, who knows, it's kind of silly season at the moment, so uh, we could be talking about literally anything. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.